It's less about about what is the right history and what is the wrong history. And it's more about like, well, the stories that you believe before we no longer believe. That's what it's about. It's like, it doesn't matter like, you know, that, that, that October is eight and it's the 10th month. It doesn't matter if it's eight or 10. It just matters that I'm giving you something to get you like on a deeper level, all jacked up in your head so that you don't have any sort of grounding and you could go and, and be, easily manipulated in terms of how you perceive reality. And I've got one last point I want to make. I'm going to flip the script on everything I just said. So you said this to me a little bit earlier in the in our program. You said, it's one of your qualities, Mike, is that I think you use ephemeral to describe it. The fact that I don't remember, like, oh, I don't remember what I was saying like three months ago. Like, I just know what I'm saying right now. Like. There, there's a, that is exactly like what I'm describing, like what is being done. But at least in my opinion, in a more natural way, and maybe one is done in a more manipulative way. And I'll say this other thing, which also fits with it, which is the idea of like, yes, you have ancestral land and this is like, you know, people are connected to it, but there is something immensely true also about the human experience as a nomad of having no ancestral land. And so there's no ground really to stand upon to say like, this is the right way it should be. We should have all of our memories or we should always be connected to our land as much as it is like, (laughs) it is a fucking wild show which we're experiencing as human beings. And trying to get your footing is not easy. And maybe that's not even possible. What's up, Mark? Uncle Mike, how you been? I've been good. It seems like we just spoke just a moment ago. It was only a moment ago. Indeed, for the listeners, uh, this might be just one episode. It might be part two. If it's part two, thank you for sticking with us. But yeah, here we are. Your handbook for the apocalypse. You got a new truck. What's new, Mike? (laughs) So from the last time we spoke, uh, so much is new. Uh, but I guess the easiest, uh, the the most obvious is um, is finally after oh God, what does it feel like? Weeks? It's months. It's not a big month that this whole sort of um, uh, car situation, which has been a um, uh, a royal clusterfuck. Um, it has finally resolved itself. And um, my thought was, my thought was that it was going to resolve itself on, um, I think it's June 19th. So it's been, it's been, June 19th would have been 90 days since um, the last time I had any tobacco. So I would smoke tobacco um, uh, now and then, but 90 days before June 19th, I don't know what date that was. Uh, that was when my car adventure began. And I kind of thought to myself, I was like, all right, 
I know it's going to resolve itself in 90 days because it takes 90 days for, uh, typically like the rule of thumb is 90 days is how long, um, like it's 21 days to begin to develop a habit and 90 days once it's ingrained into more of a lifestyle. And so I was like, okay, 90 days. And then that's when, that's when it will, uh, the, the car will, will come about because I didn't want to have any tobacco inside, uh, the car. And that was just what I was thinking, not knowing like how, how all of the hurdles that would come along the way during this, this, um, this journey I was on, but it seems to have resolved itself a little bit sooner than, than anticipated on, on June 10th. And so I've been thinking a lot, like, like the car I got rid of that, that sob, that sob has been, I've had for 13 years and six months. I did a day counter. Uh, uh, today because um, I included it. That um, was like a trade in. And I was thinking about these last 13 years and all that has transpired and who I was, how I lived, who I was, who was in my life um, at that period of time. And then just like who had come and gone throughout those 13 years and how I have. Uh, grown and changed and um, it feels like a, a like a, a a big shedding a very very large shedding I mean I'm, I'm probably gonna once we get off of uh, this phone call I'll probably spend a little bit more introspective time in terms of like what it all represents to me but that is all gone that is done that that you know whatever that that marker of a of a car and, and a car could be a symbol of like how you move through life. And like, you know, some people have strong connections to their car. Some people don't, but I, I think I did with, with the car I had before and it was doing whatever it could to stick around in my life. Like I couldn't get rid of it. I couldn't get um, a new car. And then suddenly everything just kind of came together like very, very quickly. And it was this perfect seamless transition to um, where I am now. I never thought that I was going to be a pickup truck man, but I am officially a pickup truck man. <laughs> well, I forget who just told me this. I think Ron told me this. My buddy Ron from New England hosted the Wicked Planet podcast. He owns a garage in New Hampshire. And he told me, my grandfather told me, this is an impression of him, my grandfather told me you can never go wrong with a pickup truck. You'll always have a job. <laughs> so yeah, there's some there's there's a real American quality to a pickup truck and a utilitarian. I, I I'm starting to think that I made a mistake by not getting a pickup truck as uh, one of my first cars. I I drove uh, a Buick Century, and then before that I had a. Uh, Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra Supreme, <laughs> and then I had before that a Subaru Forester. There you go. I uh, um, there, there there's a lot there there there's a lot of I guess sayings or thoughts as it relates to to pickup trucks. Like what you said, your your friend had said. I was um, I spoke to actually another Rob who uh who was kind of like guiding me through the whole this whole sort of thing he's a general manager at a at a 
dealership in Maryland. And so I was like, you know, every time I heard something from the people who I was talking to, I just had him go and verify, like, if it makes sense and so forth. But he was telling me, he was like, um, it, it's, it's hard to find, like, a good used pickup truck when you find it. Like, you definitely, you know, that's always a good value. And I spent a little time with my ex-wife today. Uh, I was over at my boy's house and seeing her have a really nice rapport. And we were just kind of uh, reminiscing about, about um, olden days. And her mother, like the back when, when we were in our 20s, her mother used to always like be in our ear saying like, you should get a pickup truck, just get a pickup truck. And this is, this is back when, you know, I was like knee deep in, in the machine, in matrix living. And the idea then of me being like having a pickup truck, it just didn't fit my worldview or life or lifestyle. And, and me and my ex-wife used to kind of like laugh at, at her mother. Cause she would always say things which we didn't necessarily value or think much of. And I was like, Michelle, your mom was so friggin' spot on. I'm thinking <laughs> back now of all the stuff she said. And I used to laugh at, and I'm like, I, she, she knew what she was talking about. And so, um, like all of this kind of like pickup truck stuff is, is coming about, but it's, it's everything like, you know, I was driving it around today and it's like a, it's like, like a car in a lot of ways are like clothes, they're like costumes. They're kind of like how you meet the world, but it may be in a little bit more of a utilitarian way than, than just clothes. But, um, when done, when, when, when done well, and what I mean by done well, like when it matches kind of, where you are in life and the, the, the role you are playing, you know, it really can, it really like, uh, it can change the game, I suppose. And so that's what it felt like for me today, like driving around, like, like kind of like looking at myself in a reflection of this, this pickup truck with this, with this cab on the back. It's like a 20 year old pickup truck. It's so freaking badass. Like I sent you a picture of it. And I'm just laughing. I'm just like, all right, this is this is this is where this chapter begins. This is where this 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 next part of my journey at least starts. So I'm definitely in um, in a a, a really um, uh, not just like you know like feeling good, but 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 recognizing like all of the things that are unfolding right now, like both in my life and in the collective life before us. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a really nice feeling. That's awesome. Yeah. And it fits right into what we've been speaking about over the past three or four episodes with this sort of nomadic, uh, vibe that you're cultivating and, you know, not laying your roots in any one place specifically at this moment in time. I think that, yeah, you can, I mean, you could put all your belongings in the cab. You could even throw that, uh, you know, throw an air mattress back there if you needed to and sleep under the stars. Exactly. And so that's where it, it, it's, uh, um, that's why I feel right now, like the, the remainder of the summer, I'll be in, in Nome countryside and really getting a lot of, uh, a lot of my, uh, ducks in a row, if you will, for what the next thing, what the next stages are going to be. And it, it just feels really good. It feels really good. I'm really looking at how this year began, you know, going back to like the, 
the, the, the Masons and then the moving to Baltimore and the living in no heat and like all of that sort of like, like that churning, that sort of experience. And then looking at where I'm standing right now and looking at what lies in front of me, you know, it's, it's like, I'm like, okay, you know, this is a, this, uh, this is a really good thing. And I'll tell you something else, which is really interesting. So, um, you know, we, we, we talked, we told the story. I mean, this is probably ad nauseum about like all the car stuff. And I talked a lot about, um, about the Subaru and what, what that was for me. And I can also look at like that period, like specifically that period of when I was in Baltimore and that was a grieving period. Like there was a part of my life, which died. There was a part of my life, which was not coming back. And anytime that happens, you know, for whatever reason, you know, something like that happens to someone in life, like you, you go through a grieving process, you know, this recognition of like, regardless if, regardless if you wanted it to change or not, you know, um, there's a, you go through this grieving period and that was part of that time in Baltimore. And that was a really, um, it was a rich time for me. It was, uh, um, very introspective, all of that sort of stuff. But the point I'm trying to make is what happened with the Subaru was this. I got it in Baltimore and I had it towed up to, um, I had it towed up to, um, Lancaster, this garage in Lancaster. And I got a, uh, I had AAA, so I got a free tow out of that. So it's perfect. It was like, you know, uh, a 90 mile tow for, for, for no charge. And I, I bring it to this garage and, um, that's when I find out that, that the car is kind of in purgatory because it had this dirty title and there wasn't really much you could do with it. And Pennsylvania has a really difficult title law. Like if it were another state, the same situation, it would have been pretty easy to fix. But Pennsylvania, it wasn't easy to fix at all. So I was going to do with this, the Subaru, all this sort of stuff. And it ended up working itself out. And the, the garage the garage, which, which I, um, I brought it up to another guy who owns it and he has, he has an, uh, his garage is kind of focused on older Subarus and Volkswagen. Like that's kind of his thing. And the, the Subaru, which I had in like a Subaru kind of, um, world like people who are into that sort of stuff, like this would have been a popular car. It was an outback wagon turbo stick shift. Right. And so that doesn't happen very often. Or, you know, they're, they're a little bit more rare. And so they're kind of fun. And particularly maybe from like a mechanics perspective, there's like, you know, that's a, that's a, um, a palette in which he can play and paint upon. So all that being said, all that being said was, um, how it worked out. Like the guy's going to, I'm just, I'm just giving him the, I'm just giving him the Subaru. And he told me when I, when we were trying to work out like what I was going to do with the Subaru with it. And it, it turned out that that was the right thing. And there, there, there's a lot more detail behind that. But the point I want to make with this, when I told him that like, you know, maybe you could just take it, would this be something you would want to blah, blah, blah. Uh, he also tells me about something within his personal life. 
and he's about to go through a period of some pretty heavy grieving. And so there was almost like, it almost felt like, a, um, like the car was a total, like, uh, and there was a, uh, if, if you think of like the relay race and track and field where you hand the baton over to another and it almost seems like, like, you know, and, and, and he's younger than I am. So it's, um, and I think he was open to some kind of like advice or support, recognizing what he's stepping into and, and me knowing like, you know, part of, part of what he's going to be doing is he, this, this Subaru is going to be one of his pet projects. Like this is going to be something he's going to be doing for himself. And that is always part of like whatever you are grieving. Like, I mean, there, there's certain things which really serve the human being during the grieving process, journaling, talking about it, um, walking, walk so fucking good for like, for, for uh, uh, any type of grief, but then also like to have a project in which you can kind of like dump this energy, get all of that kind of like internal and mental churning, like off your front and center. And you can go into something and, and apply a lot of energy. I mean, that's the whole idea of, of like inspiration for artists. So I can almost see the future, how this, how this Subaru has landed in this, this man's lap at this perfect time. And just as like, it was in my lap in my time of that. And it's just the poeticness of how life unfolds and how everything is part of this web. Like even these in, uh, inorganic sort of things, like a, an automobile but it's more than an automobile. It's like what it represented and where it was in life. And so to see that unfold is, I don't know. It was, it was, it was a, it was a cool thing. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier in the previous episode about the Mandela nostalgia and yeah, items, objects, these physical things. I mean, a car is so much more than just an object, but it, it, yeah, it becomes uh, within a life of its own, within a story of its own that transcends many different human lives, you know? Right, and, but but even, but they could also have like a certain quality or texture. Like this super who seems to have the texture of like, let's say grief. Mm. Because we're seeing it go like, and we see how like it completely, uh, my only role with it was just getting it into this guy's hands. Like, that's the only thing. Like, I didn't do, I never had the car. Like, I drove it only once from, like, a, from where it was picked up at a shop uh, to the house in, on Prospect in Baltimore. It's the only time I ever drove it. Like, it was, like, quote-unquote mine, but it was never mine. It was just, like, I was the, I was the transporter to get it up to, to my friend. Right. And it hit him right at like the timing of everything, particularly like the timing in which I'm letting go of it, the timing in which he is receiving it. Like what I just described in where I am on my particular path and me recognize like where he is in his particular path. Um, and so looking at it from that sort of perspective and that richness, like it's just uh, when you can see the poeticness in, in the mundane, like it, it, you know, to me, that's, that, that's what we're always talking about here. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Speaking of walking, we went for a little walk today. I've been uh, all right. I've been taking time to sketch out little places that we've been to, a la your rights of the 40th parallel. And, uh, you know, one of the places that is interesting is called Tucker's Ridge. And uh, we went there, Tara and I. Um, and it's pretty significant to our relationship, too, because we went there about a year ago. I mean, we actually had that conversation with you and Emily Moyer uh, from that spot. Uh, it's called the Housatonic Overlook. And then we later found out that that's adjacent to what Peter Shampoo calls the root chakra of the chakra ley line. And we've talked about that before where Tara and I drove up to Shelburne Falls where the, um, not the sacral chakra, but the um, solar plexus chakra. Thank you, Tara. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so I sketched out that area with the Zentangle um, stuff that they gave us, those little pen and pencil. And then... Uh, Today we went to a place called Mondo Pond and I sketched out a little thing there. But before that, the other, that same day, it started raining. So we just kind of drove to another spot that we also went to. Um, it's at the, the point of the river where it meets the Atlantic Ocean or Long Island Sound. So yeah, just kind of like taking a mystical approach to deciphering our landscape not rushing it either is something that i'm kind of reminding myself and her of is like we we need to intuit these things and let it come to us and and i think like where we have already gone the places that felt significant to us previously would be maybe places to start you know because before we learn this information something drew us there so I'm thinking next we should go to this big rock that we hung out at this one time. There's this giant, giant rock in the middle of the forest uh, in orange, and people always climb up to the top of it, and it's nice. You could kind of see around the trees from a perspective that you, you know, usually don't get in a forest that's flat like that. Which sounds, uh, sounds nice. Yeah. So that's what that's what I did today. Just a little walking. And are you uh, mapping this as well? Yeah, that's the that's the idea. Is to kind of with the drawing. Well, with the Housatonic Overlook one, you know, I was looking from a from a distance at a pretty large area. So the scale allowed for a sort of map to kind of come together within the picture that I drew, but where I was today at Mondo Pond, really just trying to practice, you know, my skills as, as someone who can like see something and then illustrate it, you know, try to, because that's, that's always something I've tried to do as a kid. And when I was younger, I, I would fail so many times at that, that I, I never had any confidence in doing it. But now that I've got that Zen tangle kit, there's like a different, approach I want to take to it. Uh, if they have not hired you as their spokesperson, because you're doing a great job of talking about the Zen Tangle. Wow. Um, they're great people. We, I'm glad they, they sent they, it to me. They, they're, they're very generous that way. Um, do you know, 
do you know their story with like when they got the inspiration for Zen Frankel? No. Did you hear them tell that story? So you um, you did an episode uh, with them, right, on your Susquehanna Alchemy YouTube channel? Correct. 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 Um, but I I've known this because I've known um, Rick and Maria. Uh, for maybe a year, maybe a little bit more than that, Rick reached out to me sometime ago. And I was familiar with Zentangle because my mother uh, would, would um, do it. And so he was excited. He was excited to tell me, I guess he heard me once talk about the Gaia Matrix. And so he went and he got the Gaia Matrix. And I don't remember which spot. What was the spot which he said... Uh, was the was the solar plexus? Oh, Shelburne Falls. Where is that? What that's, state? That's in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty certain that's where they were. Well, and, and and based on what you said in a previous conversation about where they're from, I would imagine that they found out too that where they live is on that same ley line. It's just uh, I don't know if that particular spot is a one of the chakras. There was. I can't remember specifically. There was a very, very specific place that is mentioned in God Matrix. I don't remember what it was. It was in Massachusetts. I'm pretty sure it began with an F. Um, because what what they were excited to share with me was they, you know, they read the Gaia Matrix ten years or however long it's been since Zentangle had become a thing, and they told me the story or that, you know, it was really, really significant. They were just doing what they were doing before. I think, uh, Rick made, um, native American flutes and he would travel and sell them at craft shows and so forth. And, um, she was a professional hand calligrapher where she would do handwritten invitations to, to events, weddings for, you know, the, the upper, upper, upper class who can hire people to go and write their, their invitations. And they came up and, and they came up like they, they had a really, a really beautiful story of how they kind of became, they met as friends and their friendship was just based about walking. And then that turned into a romance. And then from that romance, they had this idea for Zen Tangle. And when they kind of like, however it came to them like you know there was a moment where they're like okay this is a thing and we're gonna do this and when they had that realization that they're gonna cross whatever that line would be they said okay let's go away for a weekend and let's just map this whole thing out and figure out what we're gonna do and so they went away for a weekend and they did that and they're like this is what we're gonna do and they they basically said they were like everything in our life that was not part of this beforehand, you know, that chapter is closed. We're putting 100% of our effort into this. And like, we can look in hindsight and see what, what, what has come from it. But in their story, there is such a clear marker for when that happened. It wasn't a gradual thing. It wasn't like, Oh, it just kind of unfolded. Next thing you know, we had this. It was so they had an inspiration. They went to a spot they said they made a declaration and then it became, and that spot was immensely meaningful in their, in their story. And that spot is the spot, which was of great significance in the Gaia matrix. So when they read the Gaia matrix and they're like, Holy crackers, like, you know, our personal experience on something which had a world that has a worldwide impact 
ties in right there in the same way. Like it was expressed, like this is the type of energy. And so, um, yeah, stories like that are, you know, they, 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 they get me in my, they get me in my soft spot. Us too. Wow. Yeah. Tara put the headphones on. She's listening in, uh, live here. And is she near the microphone? Yeah. She could say hi. Can she, can I put her on the spot so we can hear her voice? She's waving. <laughs> I giggle. It's fine. That's all we need to hear because I don't want to, I don't want to put you that much on the spot. She's funny. But it has she she said hi. I don't know the mic. Did, she she needs to get closer to the mic. But she said hi. But you hit her soft spot too because for us, Shelburne Falls was really, really significant um, on our journey. You know, traveling around and understanding. And like I was saying before, you know, I try to stress to her like, hey, we have to intuit this one step at a time. I mean, you just told us a story that sounds like it took place over a period of a decade before they really like saw the the silver lining that was there you know like you, i think there's oh, a yeah, certain like patience their, their, rela- their relationship like how that became what what became intertwined with this thing like yeah that was there was a period of time before that happened it's beautiful yeah i i'm i'm very grateful that uh you connected me with them and yeah, although that one thing happened, I think we could still put that aside and maybe have them on um, our show or the show that Tara and I are going to be doing, her show that's yet to be named, um, but she has interviewed two people so far. I will say the that. show that has yet to be named. Yes. There's been several names over the course of a few months, but still waiting on one that really feels right, I guess. So, but yeah, we, um, wow. Yeah. I think the, the Peter shampoo guy at matrix is gonna, we're going to find out that this is, this is a bigger, it's, it's, it's a global thing. It's connecting. And I think Peter, you know, a lot of people, say that oh i don't you know get into ley lines because it's all too subjective it's all you know this and that i don't know if you can argue with what peter's laid out the same way you could with just one-dimensional lines because the the arrangements that he's showing are clearly you know geometrical patterns but that's a you know a whole tangent i know we were planning on going down a different avenue with this conversation. We're, we're, we're still going to hit that. I want to go. Uh, okay. We're going to still hit that 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 line because I put some thought into it, and I would hate to put thought into something and not to be able <laughs> to use it. But right. to what you to what you, I, I just want to make a comment on, like what what Peter created with Sky Matrix. Um, it's 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 a painting. You can't argue with it. Like you're like you know. I don't know if people can argue with it. If if, if someone tries to argue with it, like like their mind, they they, they shouldn't even be in the museum. They shouldn't be in the friggin' museum and they shouldn't be allowed to look at the picture because it's not meant to be argued with. It's meant to be contemplated. It's meant to be contemplated. And so that doesn't mean that this is the answer. This is like, wow, what does this inspire for me to go and see? And whether or not it takes you down a different path, well, I mean, that's fine. But to argue with it is silly. Um, what he did and how he weaved together, um, you know, that, book 
went through through so many different layers. And it's what's so fascinating about it is that it's pre nine eleven. It's pre two thousand one. That was like there was an in that was a different time on Earth. That was a different consciousness. And he was still pulling that the the stuff out. I mean you read some of it, I think like some of it feels like dated from a particular period of time, um, like particularly in the back part of that book, but the front part of the book, like that is just pure gold, pure mm. gold. Yeah. I, I'm excited to have him back on. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to become a nuisance to him. So respectfully, I'm going to wait a month or so before I book him again. But yeah, I think it's, uh, it's definitely the, the gift that keeps on giving his work. I mean, it just keep, we keep coming back to it and he's kind of getting on the circuit now, right? Of course. Would you say Tara? It came up last night too with esoteric Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. We had a conversation. We had a great conversation about a, a uh, sorcerer, a Toltec sorcerer, whose name uh, I would really do an injustice to if I tried. It's Kotli Poka. There you go. That's close. That's pretty Very much. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and yeah, I was I was commenting on how this Aztec, um, the pyramids are in Peter Shampoo's alignment because part of esoteric Eddie's theory is that this Toltec sorcerer uh, sort of cursed the you know, situation that was going on there. And ever since there's been like this obsession with death and, and, uh, skulls and, you know, I kind of connected it to skull and bones and Eddie and I kind of just went back and forth. Great episode. Tara was there for that one too. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it's definitely, like I said, the gift that keeps on giving. But I think it's, it's fascinating because, you know, he, he, how old is he not right now? He's got to be in his seventies, right? I think he told me he was coming upon his eighties. He's coming up on his eighties. This yeah. dude is 80. He wrote that book some 20. So he wrote that book probably in his sixties. Uh, uh, if I can do, if I'm doing my math correct. And that would have, it, it's kind of like disappeared. Like, you know, it went in the backdrop, like, you know, the, the world advanced very quickly uh, you know, since 2000, since September 11th to like where we are now in technology and a lot of the stuff he did, like prop was easily like, there are those who are familiar with his work and probably continue to follow it, but he wasn't out there, uh, put being exposed to new audiences, you know, just by where he was in life's journey. But now like, you know, just from the fact that you and I talk about it all the time, uh, you talk about it on a lot of shows. I heard, um, I talked to another, another podcast host who was, who mentioned him. And I'm just like, this guy, like his work is having this, this, you know, you said the gift that keeps giving, I would describe it more so as like this, this rebirth, mm. you know, almost like there's, it's that in, it's that in stillness for some time, but like it's beginning to like, uh, um, Finally, there is a there's a, a large enough group. There's a critical mass which is starting to form of consciousness where people can appreciate what is being um, what is being painted in words and expressed because it's bigger than the words. It's 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 literally talking about like you know it's beginning to understand our 
if we could understand, like, uh, if, if what, what Peter has pointed out in Diametrics is just one percent of like you know pointing at something larger it this is like the 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 foundations of of radical new reality in the fact that the understanding between the relationship of human unfolding and uh and landscapes and and uh landscape energy fields like this is this is how things change and it did not seem to have that much of an audience before, but finally, like, you know, we're starting to see it get these roots. Yeah. I'm glad to help with the resurgence. I think, uh, it's kind of similar to Jose Arguelles. Like we see Andre Visan, the woman I had on my show earlier, carrying the, the torch of his work forward and, you know, post-mortem of course, but yeah, Peter, I mean, if podcasts were around when Jose was still alive, I wonder, you know, how many great episodes there would be of various podcast interviews with him, you know? He might have been on Coast to Coast. I don't know if he was a native English speaker or not, but um, but yeah, uh, I, would I would imagine he was. I would imagine he was as well. Reminds you of Freddie it. Silva's work, Tara? Yeah. Well... Just reading about it or listening to the podcast, and <clears throat> excuse my voice. Um, and it's he talks about the the three um, stone circles, and one is a little out of alignment, I think. But um, in it, Scotland, you mean? Uh, yeah, in okay. Scotland. Well, I told you about the connection to Freddie Silva with uh, Talakiel, right, Mike? Yes, you did. My whole point in saying that is that that um, there's there's this, there's alignments and the stone circles are on top of this mound uh, at the tail of this uh, on this isthmus, and I forget what language it is, but it's tale of tale of the throne and um there's the so th that's the location and he he puts it so eloquently but um yeah and it's on top of a hill a mound um and then you are the, like the third uh throne like it all relates kind of back to you. And then, so from this, I'm totally butchering this. So yeah, the, um, the place, uh, never mind. But well, do you have a, do you have a point or a question that you want to wrap up to? I thought I could sum it up like he did, but obviously. Okay. Well, it is interesting. It's, it's a, Nonetheless, interesting, Tara. I just, I don't know. I don't know where it fits into what we were talking about. That's all. Because, what, because what, Mike was, what, Mike, what you were saying about consciousness and coming to this uh, new understanding of um, our place here and okay. our our relationship. relationship, yeah, and and the recognition of, and it's just a remembering because obviously. This isn't anything new. 
it's just that, uh, uh, as you're kind of describing, Tara, like, you know, these, these are, um, there are markers from the past of these understandings of how we, as, as, you know, as beings on, you know, with the earth beneath our feet, like this is how, this is how we would interact in a way which is harmonious, where we understand from a radically different level, what the relationship is between the human experience and, and where we're having that experience in a very material way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I think to wrap that into maybe stranger things somehow, these oh, sites. I, I already know how to wrap it into tracing, but where are you going to go with it? Well, I was going to say these sites that, especially the place like Shelburne Falls, and you know, when you go to the potholes, because just like the place you took us to, you know, when Tara and I came down to the Susquehanna, um, south of Three Mile Island, Shelburne Falls has those same potholes. And it felt like traveling into a different time. I mean, although we weren't able to walk around on the rocks like we were on the Susquehanna river, just looking down from the sort of, uh, what was that? Like a bricked in porch or something from uh, up above the waterfall. It was, it was like, yeah, you can imagine uh, what it was like in another time when people would have been fishing there and maybe even pulled fish out of the potholes that got caught. Remember I was saying something about that. Like, Oh, people probably were, using this uh, with fishing or something, who knows? But anyways, uh, yeah, I think there's a certain timeless quality to these stone sites that Freddie Silva uh, has been writing about in his books. All right, I, uh, I, I got one more thing I wanna to add to that before, before, we, before we pivot. Um, I think that I've brought, I'm, I'm always positive I brought this up before with you and most of the on the show is the Eel, E-E-L, Weirs, I think I'm pronouncing correctly, W-E-I-R-S, Eel Weirs, that were found in the Susquehanna, first discovered, like, maybe, like, three years ago? Yes. Did I tell, have we talked about this before? Yeah, yeah. I've actually, I think the other um, guests I've had on my other podcasts for sure have brought it up, but, yeah, I'm pretty sure you brought it up, too. Specifically the Susquehanna one. No, no, no. But the the concept, yes. Okay, so the the Susquehanna one is a, that's what I'm talking. I'm talking about that one, and so that was just that was like released as like like new information into the public mindset, uh, right when the whole sort of virus story uh, became a reality, like when the lockdown first began. Like you know, uh, and the story was like there was some science teacher who was not going to school and he had like a drone and he was flying it over the river and he saw these things and blah, blah, blah. All right. So that was at a key location. I was in a place in Pennsylvania, which is known as Bloomsburg. And, and I've had some pretty interesting personal experience with Bloomsburg myself. And I really haven't been to that many places in Pennsylvania. So to count that in my places, which I've, I've connected with, I'm like, okay, this is, this is hitting me on a couple of, of my levels and then the timing of it with like the timing of the world and all this sort of stuff. So, um, I, me and Ross are doing a, uh, me and Ross Ben are doing an event, uh, in August 
it's called Mycofest, M-Y-C-O, uh, in Pennsylvania. And it's, uh, it's a mushroom sort of uh, event, and we're going to present, and we're going to talk uh, about, you know, the things which we talked about. And he's coming up with some new material, and he's, and he's really good at doing these kind of maps where he connects what we now, like, you know, current cities and, and geometries, and similar to what Peter does, but different, but more similar. And there is this really key shape, which, which is on an axis between Bloomsburg and Philadelphia. And so uh, he just, it, the map showed itself that way. He didn't, Ross didn't know about the, the, ear, the eel weirs or anything along those lines. And so it's, again, to me, from what I'm aware of, I'm like, this is further um, pointing to the significance of that spot on earth, that spot on the river of being of some degree of significance. So then fast forward to yesterday. Was it yesterday? Maybe it was yesterday. So yesterday I was in my storage unit and I was going through, um, I was going through books. Like I'm, I'm figuring out what to do with all these books that are in there. I don't like them just sitting in storage. And I picked out a couple of good ones. And, um, and the ones I haven't looked at for a long time, I haven't seen my book. I haven't looked at my books for like years. A lot of them have been in storage. And there was this one, and I think it's called the, uh, the North American Encyclopedia, but the Encyclopedia of North American Giants. What? <laughs> I think that's what's called. Go, you, can you do a search right now and see if I'm getting that title correct? Something it's the first thing I thought of was this Encyclopedia of North American Mounds by Gregory Gregory Little, but okay, this is a very complimentary book. Okay, hold on. Encyclopedia is a long word. Hold on, we need two hands for that one. (laughs) All right, got it. You found it, yes. Who's the author? And it's got a really kind of cool-looking cover, too. Oh, wow, yeah. Fritz Zimmerman, I have one of his books. I have his book about the Ohio Valley. Uh, Right. So, like, Fritz, so his work really ties in, I think, a lot to, like, what we're saying with with what Tara was saying um, out in Scotland and what we're seeing with with Shampoo's work and, like, with Ross's work. Like, we're all kind of, like, dancing around similar things. And so tying this back to this eel weir thing and this Bloomsburg, like <clears throat> Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, I'm just like kind of watching from the sidelines. Like, I'm like, I don't know what's going on there, but I know that there's, there, there's something. And, and I've got enough irons in the fire that I'm not necessarily like chasing that, that lead down, but I recognize that it's, there's something there to chase down. So I'm in my storage locker. I pick up that book. I haven't picked up that book in at least a couple of years. And I start flipping through it. And then I see like they ha- there's a whole section in it. And I think it's called like Neanderthal burial mounds or burial sites or something like that. And I know the context of the book is you know, the Encyclopedia of North American Giants. And so I know it's got a, a, a non-mainstream perspective of, of looking at our North American landscape. And then underneath this Neanderthal burial sites, like that would be the section. And then there'd be like five or six different chapters or sub chapters uh underneath it and one of them was eel weirs 
And I'm like, what the fuck's an eel weir? Like, what is going on here? Like, this guy was coming at the eel weir from a very specific perspective of having a greater significance. All that was written was, like, one paragraph. And I didn't really get to the meat. I Maybe I didn't read the chapter before. I was I was kind of just coming through quickly. But I didn't get the meat of why the eel weir was so was was special enough to, to make make it into his book. But it still points to the fact that these these um uh uh markings and and earthen uh uh manipulations on the earth definitely point to something like, you know, a very different way of of interacting and it's becoming more and more in your face, self-evident to be looked at, explored, and and understood, and then you know internalized, and then you know experienced. Hmm. Do you know that eel skin leather is highly prized and exceptionally smooth and strong? Man, you make me want to get a belt. <laughs> a belt of eel. <laughs> I think it would make it like that, that, the eel seems to make itself like the, the, the shape of the body felt seems to fit well with a, a, a belt. That was the first thing that popped in my mind. I'm being well, silly though. Considering uh, how dangerous snakes can be, I think eels would be a nice substitute if you needed like some sort of tube shaped garment. There we go. You know, it's very useful, but not to mention it's just edible but so maybe i lost the the point about the eel weirs but well the eel weirs being something special and like i knew that there was something going on in bloomsburg because all signs are pointing to bloomsburg and i knew there was an eel weir and i didn't know what exactly why that was significant but i was able to look at enough other pieces of evidence that were suggesting that you know, there's something going on here, guys. There's something to look at. And then seeing that in a book where it's talking about eel weirs, not in not in context of the Susquehanna, but just in their own existence is something of great significance. And I told you it was under the heading of the Neanderthal burial sites. Um, and I didn't quite understand why they, they're calling the eel weirs why it connects with the, the Neanderthal burial sites. And I'm not certain what he's suggesting Neanderthal burial sites may actually be, but it's just more confirmation that all of these things that we're beginning to uncover, like they are, no matter how you're looking at it from all of these different angles, like it's, it's supporting this same idea that how we relate to this earthen landscape is dramatically different. Even us like open-minded folks are saying, yeah, it's dramatically different. I don't think we know what that means. We just know that it is. And that's part of like what the seeking is, is to, to, to become closer to that and understand what exactly that means from an experiential level. Agreed. So stranger things. All right. So, now we're going to switch back to, like, uh, apocalyptic pop culture. Do they call it that? Do they call it a pop? Like, is there a way to connect pop culture and apocalypse, like, into, like, a, a, a word? Because I think that would be cool. But nonetheless. <laughs> I'll work on that while you're talking. Yeah, well, right. That, that's the assignment. All right. So, so, so stranger things. 
we got to have a conversation about Stranger Things. Um, and particularly in light of our most recent one with Keanu Reeves. Because, well, whereas it may not exactly be the same thing, it's the same, um, uh, it's coming out of the same vehicle or vessel, you know, Hollywood, pop culture, all that sort of stuff. And so you said you've seen a little bit of Stranger Things. You have a, a basic understanding of of it as a a a program. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a there's a kid. It's kind of strange. She's allegedly a part of some kind of program. She's got a weird name. She uh, has powers, and her friends are all helping her do stuff. All right. So, <laughs> so that was good. That was really good. <laughs> really good explanation. And I'm going to add to that. So Stranger Things, the show that's been out, this is probably the only TV show I think I've seen in the last couple of years. But I've seen them all. Um, it's the one thing which I could really get, like, you know, I can speak with any degree of, of contemporary uh, uh, contemporary pop culture. I've only well, and it like did hit with, it. like, a big splash. I remember when it came out, it was the talk of the town for uh, at least the first season, the full run yeah, of the like, first season. Like, it was the, the It Show for a bit, right? right? It was the It Show. And... Um, so uh, it takes place in the 80s, all right? And it takes place, like, the, the primary uh, set of characters, particularly when it began four years ago, they were all kind of, like, middle school age. So the people, so who that's going to really resonate with the deep, most deeply in terms of viewers are going to be people who probably were born um, in the the early to mid seventies because they would have been at that age at the same time. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? So like if, yeah. if stranger things takes place in 1985 and there are a bunch of 12 year olds, anyone who's 12 in 1985 or around that, when they watch a show like this in 2022, like that is, that is some deep ass mind fuckery. I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, like in terms of like, setting up a structure for entering deeply into people's like kind of uh, uh, deep memory banks. Like th- th- that's just like, you know, to, to open that up willy nilly is, um, you know, as I said, that's mind fuckery in my, in my, in my opinion. So with that being said, like I'm game for it <laughs> for whatever reason. So, and so uh, stranger things, it ties in, very, very well. Um, uh, MK Ultra government stuff, and um, uh, maybe esotericism. Not so much like esotericism, like practicing magic, but more so like uh, maybe maybe more mystical, like um, fantasy. Up, they call it the upside down or the upside down world, and it it so it deals. It deals a lot with that. So there's this bleed over between like top secret government stuff, which if you know, you pay attention to how they're presenting it. It's like the people who are writing the script certainly are reading the same books that all of us are reading about these programs. And and then how it spills over into this this other realm. And they, they do it really um 
they, that, that's the backdrop and, and it, it's just well done in terms of storytelling in all sorts of different ways. It's, 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 it's a, a high quality, popular culture. Um, you know, it's high quality fast food. <laughs> that's, that's what you could call it. Mm. So, um, they just came out with, well, they just came out with the fourth season. Um, and, and that's why I'm bringing this up because uh, when I go and I see my boys, it's the only time I, there's Netflix and that's something I watch with them. Uh, and then, uh, so I've been watching a little of that, but before I get into that, it, the, the show itself has had a, a personal, um, like hook into my mind. And so that's, that happens a lot when, when we're watching these shows and, and we're looking at popular culture and we're using it as a personal mirror. And uh, you almost got into this when you talked about, about Keanu Reeves because you started that episode saying like, well, you know, I was intrigued because, you know, his name is Reeves, my name is Steve. And then you just stopped it right there. But if you would have used that as a launching point and gone deeper into looking for other tangible similarities, that's where you're going to begin to go and find like insight into your own journey. Like that's just the nature of how our reality works is the interconnectedness. And it's also part of like what I've referred to in the past as the, the James Shelby downward vortex. Like that's what pulls you in. Uh, but nonetheless, so stranger things, uh, pulled into me, uh, particularly, um, uh, because I have, uh, um, when I was in middle school, so they were middle school kids when they were, is when they took place in, in the show. And I, when I was in middle school in my actual real life in, what was this? Like maybe 1984, 1985. So I'm literally the same age as, as the characters and the dude's name, the main character's name, his name is Mike. And he, you know, it doesn't look exactly like me, but I kind of look like that when I was like middle, like middle school, like kind of like long and, and, and like, uh, like really like, like, like long gangly arms and, and, and face. I'm like, yeah, I know that Mike, that was kind of like me. And when I was that age, I remember it so clearly, uh, me and a couple other classmates, we made a movie and it was entered into my, the County's film festival. And it was called the strange happening. And it was very much like what the first, the first, I mean, not very much, but it was, it had a similarity as to what that first season of Stranger Things was. I'm like, hold on, this is a little bit too strange because I, when at that age, had something called The Strange Happening. And we made a movie and it was just about like what we're kind of seeing happen in the strange town of Hawkins. So like, so it had me hooked from the beginning. So fast forward until this latest episode or this latest series or um, season, which just came out. And I've only seen, I think, I think I've seen four episodes and there may be like eight out already. And I'm beginning to appreciate the level of, of meta mind fuckery, which is happening on like how they're, they're doing the show. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, they, the, this, this season storyline has a, an influence from a pop, a very popular, uh, pop culture line from the eighties, the nightmare on, on Elm street, the uh, movie franchise. Are you familiar with that? 
not familiar with any horror movies really, but I know the movie. I know of the movie, but no, I never so, okay. seen it. So okay, so uh, nightmares and actually these nightmares, obviously. And the main character was this, like the they're very implanted in the collective consciousness, like who the horror film um, killers are. Like there was Jason from Friday Thirteenth, there was Michael Myers from Halloween, and then Freddy Krueger from Nightmare of Elm Street. I would say those would probably be, um, you know, the, the biggest names that have been cemented into the collective mind. And Freddy Krueger had a certain look with like a hat and a scarred face and a sweater and these like razor blade fingernails or something. So what they're doing is if you're paying attention to, uh, what, what, what stranger things, how they write the show, um, they're taking things from the eighties and they're using that as inspiration for plot devices or back or like character names. And they're doing it like over and over again. And that's what I mean by mind fuckery because it's few people think is, is, uh, with the degree of minutia and interconnection that maybe I bring to when I see something like pop culture, but that doesn't mean they're not aware of that. in their subconscious. Obviously they are. So in this, they're doing this kind of nightmare of in Elm street type, um, of, of, uh, um, plots going on. And then they have the actor who played Freddy Krueger in the nightmare and, uh, nightmare and Elm street kind of work into the, um, to work into the actual TV show. So like they're doing all of this, like self referencing, which is just like, just slightly beneath the, the level of being obvious. And then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Once you realize that they're doing that, you see it over and over again. I'll give you like another example. They're doing a lot with, um, well, you know, you know who the band Iron Maiden is? Yeah. they have like the really wicked looking cover art, album art, t-shirts. I was actually just complimenting our friend Juan that his podcast logo reminds me of Iron Maiden. You are 100% correct. And so, Iron Maiden, they were, um, I mean, I don't think I would know any of it. I, I, that was never a genre of music, which, which, which I listened to, but I know who they were from a pop cultural reference point. And there was a certain, like, uh, if that was like your theme, like if that was your thing, man, like there's a certain look and there's a certain way of, of like, you know, of being, so they've got that character. They got a character who's kind of like, uh, who fits into that, that, that stereotype, that character, that, that, um, that look, that genre in stranger things. And to your point about Iron Maiden's, um, cover art, they always had this like skull face guy, right? Yeah. Are you familiar? Yeah. So he's in everything because he is like, he's the main character. And that, that's like kind of like, I don't know, maybe the demon, <laughs> whether it's done tongue in cheek, whether you think it's like conjuring, I don't know, but like it's, it is what it is. Like he's in all of their artwork and it's very difficult to separate Iron Maiden from the concept of this kind of cartoon demon skeleton face looking guy. And so that, that guy's name is Eddie. Mm. 
there's a name. His name is Eddie. Like, if you go and you type in Iron Maiden and Eddie, you'll be like, oh, that's who that demon is. His name is Eddie. So they have him. Uh, they have the guy in Stranger Things. Um, you know, that's, that's, he looks like an Iron Maiden guy, and they name him Eddie, and it has to do with demons. And so all of this kind of, like, meta, like, tongue-in-cheek sort of Easter egg-esque uh, referencing is um, is you know it's 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 part of the Stranger Things show, uh, or, or the way they are able to get deep into one's mind, like all of this kind of cleverness. So where I'm going with all of this, and what I think is really interesting, or what what, what is capturing my attention about this right now, is um, they also they they use a lot of actors who particularly the actors who are shown as adults in stranger things, like someone who is like literally like, like 60 or 50 years old. Um, but that actor who is playing a 50 or 60 year old character in stranger things was a, um, was a, a popular actor in the eighties as a younger person. So mm, do, do right. you kind of follow what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. What, so what I'm getting at is I, I, I've demonstrated the fact that Stranger Things is built about like this self-referencing and these like, re, it, the whole thing is about mind control. The show is about mind control. The girl who you said who, who's got the special powers, she has the special powers because she was raised in an, or in an MK Ultra facility whose whole purpose was to develop all of the, you know, the psi abilities within the individual. And so that, that, is, that is the foundational element of the story which is told, and it is being told in such a, like, a mind-fuckery way. You're like, you know, what exact, and it's done so well. That's, you know, you, people love to watch it. They don't look away because it's good, it's good pop culture, good fast food. It's like, wow, these, these McDonald's fries are great. I just can't stop eating them. Um, so, okay. So there's one character in particular who I want to get to. All right. And he plays, he plays the head of the MK ultra training, um, program. So he would be, he's not named this, but uh, if you could think of like a, like, like I think a, a common, if you're familiar with MK Ultra, if you know who Dr. Green is, like, you know, this could be like a Dr. Green character. Or if you're familiar with like the, the Nazi stories they tell us, he would be like the Mengele, like, you know, the really high level evil genius who was like, you know, uh, uh, focused upon cracking the human psyche for whatever purposes, but to like unleash certain powers. So, all right. So the guy who plays that and, and his, his name is Papa, which I do believe now that I say that, I think that's what Mangala was, was known as also. If it wasn't Mangala, there was, there was another one of these, um, these like top level handlers who went by Papa and maybe I, maybe I'm, I'm thinking from like one of those Kathy O'Brien books, something like that. I've read all that stuff. You know, I've, I, it's always been a topic that I found very interesting. Um, so the guy who plays that, who's like the real mastermind and, and it, it, it's really thought provoking because the way he's presented, like it's, 
it, you, you, you don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Like it, it could go either way. Like, does he really have people's best interest at heart and blah, blah, blah. So it's played by an actor by the name of Matthew Modine. Do you know who Matthew Modine is? No. Okay. So Matthew Modine was, um, in the eighties, he was, uh, you know, he probably would have been, um, I don't know what, 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 what's that dude? Zach, Zach, Zach Elfron. Is that his name? Is that like a, like a, like a, like a Hollywood star, like a male star nowadays? Yeah. I think he's from the Modian moon. Huh? Huh? Tara, Tara just showed me a, a book that this book her and I found on one of our journeys. Uh, it's like a novel, our, our first journey. Uh, she just ran off to the other room to get it, but uh, so I guess the name is similar. But so with Matthew Modine, I would say he was like in the eighties when Zach Elfron, I think that's his name, is Efron. Like, Efron. Efron. He's from Efron. High School Musical. Right, right. Like he was kind of like maybe not like so Disney, but kind of like how he was pre how he's presented, like in terms of like you know. Okay. Like a, he was uh, the uh, Zac Efron of the eighties, is what like you're saying. Like kind of a pretty boy, like kind of, but kind of like you know a, a muscular guy. And his first film, his breakout film, which he was probably best. Not all like the film in itself was kind of forgettable, I suppose. But there was something else that happened in that film which made it a cultural linchpin, meaning like something that was introduced into the collective consciousness through this vehicle, which then became absolutely huge. And so any times we see like this is where that that person or that thing was first introduced, like even if that vehicle is forgotten, that is the vehicle which is which is transcended that individual into the collectiveness. And what that is in this case is in this movie, which I'm about to talk about, which is where Matthew Modine, I believe it may have been his debut, but if it wasn't, he was the, he was definitely the star of it. Um, it was where the world was introduced to Madonna. Hmm. Okay. All right. So, so think about like whatever you want to think about Madonna, like that's completely irrelevant. What is, what is, what is, uh, 100% objective, uh, about talking about Madonna is like her influence on the collective consciousness is enormous. Like there are very few people during its period of time that have had as big of an influence as that person. So she was introduced through, she had a cameo in this movie and she sang a song. Uh, it was called crazy about you. And it was, I can remember this like being in, maybe I was in high school when this happened, maybe middle school, but it was like, that was when, like there was a time when it was like, Madonna was like really cool. And that was like when she was first introduced, who was it? And it was like, there was all this buzz. So this movie, so this movie is called vision quest. I know this movie. I, it's about a high school wrestler. Yeah, we actually watched this movie. It was like a wrestling team party that the coaches had at one of their houses. And, uh, you know, the coach, one of his sons was on the team, and we all went over his house and watched uh, watched Vision Quest one night. Yeah, it was really oh. cool. <laughs> 
I can't believe that you've seen this because this is not a this is not a movie with most people. My I, favorite I, movies, Mike. Uh, oh, so this is unbelievable. So let me go and paint a little bit more context, and then we can get into Vision Quest. Um, so the the main character that's Matthew Modine. Okay. okay. Now I so yeah I didn't realize okay. that. Okay. So cool. that's Matthew Modine, and so now in Stranger Things, which now just think about what Stranger Things is in the collective consciousness. He is the symbol of like the 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 Mengele head of MK Ultra. So there's a link there, okay? And it's a link to the eighties because the whole movie or the whole show of Stranger Things is all about the eighties. Everything is self referencing in that movie in, in Stranger Things and then by looking at what it's self referencing to, like you can get deeper into understanding what Stranger Things is about and then even more so get deeper insight into like what the meta aspect which is also linked in. So we've got Matthew Modine and he is the wrestler there and it's called Vision Quest. So we're gonna get into what the vision quest is. That's why what I'm so so interested in talking about this. Um and do you remember when Madonna sings crazy about you in the movie? It just, yeah. It was just like in the back. It was like the 32nd part of the movie. It wasn't a big deal at all. She was like a background singer, like in a, in a, in a the bar club, or something, yeah. but it changed everything. Like it was like the biggest thing, but here's the other thing. So in stranger things, one of the key, um, when you know that, any of the people who went through the MK Ultra programming and they were able to tap into uh, the the psi element of their mental capacity or, or faculties and do all of these unworldly or otherworldly things, they would get nosebleeds. And like the, and that was a big part. I remember being really grossed out when that happened that, in Vision Quest. That was the biggest thing in Vision Quest. That yeah. was the symbol of Vision Quest. Like the, the, the climax of Vision Quest was about that dude's nosebleeds. So like everything, like as he was going on his Vision Quest, he was just, he was getting the nosebleeds because he was trying to cut weight, right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. He was trying to cut weight and because he was, uh, the way he was being so extreme to cut weight uh, he did not have enough iron and that's why I was having the nosebleeds. And so people were like, no, you can't go. You're, you're pushing yourself too hard. And you know, you, it's not worth it. It's not worth it, dude. And the bloody nose. And so that is the same image, which we're seeing in stranger things. So now we're seeing, now we're starting to go and like weave this together. Like, you know, what is this thing about? And, the key, in my opinion, is this Papa, this Matthew Modine, who we know was introduced going on the vision quest. And then how then is the vision quest of what he's doing in MK Ultra? Like, how are they paralleled or similar in concept? So now mm. I want to hear what your thoughts are, like, the, like the, uh, the concept, like what a vision quest is. It's like a rite of passage, like going and, and becoming who you're meant to be, discovering your purpose, connecting with your higher calling, something to that degree. Exactly. Exactly. Like it's almost, uh, um, like it's, 
it's almost a, a, a calling out of a crisis. Like a lot of times, like you'll see what will happen in, in life journey, in one's life journey, that a crisis, you know, an existential crisis, like something like really, really significant in someone's life will bring about like a major and often like, you know, a, a major change in one's life and bring them down a path maybe a path of great fulfillment or, or, you know, of purpose, which if they had not have had that crisis, like, you know, that probably they would have gone, they wouldn't have found the path, which eventually was like their path. And what a vision quest is, is like, as opposed to just allow, like waiting for that to happen, you go and you purposefully bring one about, you know, this is, it's a, it's the idea of creating a, an environment where, where that will, where that happens, where whatever it is that like what a crisis really brings about within the human being in, in, in that the crisis and the understanding that the crisis actually brings the person to where they need to be. Um, the vision quest is a conscientious approach to particularly as a rite of passage the understanding one's role in life through the, the, the crisis. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's what it is. So, hmm. how, so then if we understand that, if we understand that and they're telling that metaphorically in the movie, they're telling it metaphorically in the movie, like through wrestling and then they tie it into romantic love, which is really kind of interesting. Um, then they tied it in specifically because the, the wrestler kind of uh, began to lose his way because he falls in love with this older woman. And then, you know, he's more focused upon the relationship than like, you know, what his purpose is. And then uh, the older woman realizes that, that uh, she's taking him off of his purpose. And she's, she kind of, um, uh, uh, she pulls out of the relationship so that he can go and do what he needs to do. And she takes, Though it was hard for, it was the hard thing to do for the heart. It was the right thing to do for like, you know, the soul, if you will. And, and that's kind of like what the Hollywood story, which they tell in it, but now looking into, let's say stranger things and what stranger things is pointing to is like, you know, really this kind of MK ultra fuckery in terms of like, well, this is actually like a vision quest. Yep. You know, we're bringing about a crisis. We're bringing about something in order to go and 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 bring about the next level of of whatever the the crisis will bring about. Mm-hmm. At least that's what that's what I'm seeing in the show as it's unfolding. And looking at that Matthew Modine character is. Um, is, uh, uh, you know, I think is, is an interesting angle to go down this, uh, this, to look at this, this particularly story. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. His name is in the, in the story is Loudon Swain, which when you look at it, it's like kind of look like the words loud and swan pop out. And for people who are familiar with like the MK Ultra stuff. There is a character who is in the lore named Ingo Ingle Swan. Are you familiar with Ingo Swan? Certainly. 
the uh, the remote viewer. Yeah, which isn't. I don't know if that's directly tied into the MK Ultra stuff, but it's definitely it's definitely in in that sci like uh, the the government research sci. Um, like and th- that's what's so interesting about the um, about what we what what how it's presented in Stranger Things is there's the MK Ultra element in the fact that they're young children and they're 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 they've been taken into this lab to be trained, but then what they're also doing is very similar to what what we've been told to think of is what, like Project Stargate and like these NSA sort of remote viewing size sort of things. Like there's, there's an overlap. There's certainly an overlap both in time and, and what, and what um, techniques are being used. But, you know, I, I, I hold a very, um, I'm st- I, my view of like what it's all about is still, it's still a little bit suspect. I don't think like, you know, we, we, we know, or I don't know at least like the full story. Um, but yes, the, uh, Ingo Swan is, is definitely, uh, a name that is at least kissing cousins to MK ultra. Mm. Yeah. What was the, what was the name of Keanu Reeves, girlfriend? Jennifer Syme. So, and what was the last name of the of the main characters? Name? Like, are those similar? Eh, no, they they both start with an S, but that's about it. How many syllables? Well, yeah, they both have one syllable, Swain, yeah, and so, then Syme. Yeah, yeah. So when you say that's just about it, no, that's like that's one <laughs> thing. Like you can, you gotta you gotta start like it does. Like there's lots of ways of of like seeing how things connect. But yes, you're right. It's not like a direct hit. I would agree with that. But it does resonate. That's what I was thinking when I first heard that name too. Hmm. Yeah, there's a there's another character in the um, in the movie that takes like a kind of a, I think he's like more of an ominous character, right? Shoot, Brian. Shoot is like shoot is like the is like the term you use when you're a wrestler to. Um, when you put your knee on the ground in like a sliding motion and your shoulders forward in a tackling motion, that would be considered a shoot, right? So if you're shooting for uh, an ankle pick, you wouldn't necessarily tackle them, but you would still go for that uh, body position to pull that move off. So a shoot isn't necessarily always uh, a takedown, but yeah, it is interesting that, you know, you could... You could take that word and and apply it to swan and loud swan because shoot flute right. <laughs> That's kind of what I see there. Say that again. Shoot flute. Yeah, because like, loud swan, loud and swain. Uh, shoot. It's kind of like an instrument. And then there's also another character named Margie Epstein, which uh, everybody can see the significance there. From Margie Epstein. Oh, and hold on. Then there's a coach, Carl, uh, Charlie Swan. So it's not just Loud and Swain, but the coach is Coach Swan. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's definitely a lot. And then there's another guy named, whose last name is Schmoozer. So I don't know where they come up with these uh, these uh, names for characters and these sorts of things. But yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going any deeper than any of this, but considering our conversation the other day with uh, Keanu Reeves, 
um, sometimes it's fun for me to play upon uh, those, pull upon those strings of looking at the, 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 the pop culture world and diving a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely, um, definitely a lot of connections that you can make with this sort of thing, but I was expecting to go into maybe more of the, um, the time travel side of things, but is that even really a part of the story there? Am I just kind of inserting that in myself? Do they touch on in time travel things? and stranger things? Uh, not, no. Uh, what, what, what they do talk about, which is kind of interesting is they have this idea of what they call, they call it the upside down and it is a, um, uh, a shadow world in like more or less the same, the same physical place, if you will, but a different dimension, like they're separate, but it's the same thing. And it shows it as like, you know, this really creepy and like, you know, shadowy shadow world, but, um, and how they're, they are kept separated from their, the regular world through like, you know, whatever it is that keeps dimensions separate from one another. And part of the show is, uh, how the government like is punching through to the other side and, and like all the stuff that happens. Like it's got a little bit of a certain element, if you will or at least that's what I took from it. And so that's not so much about time travel, but it deals with like, like dimensional shifts and dimensional travel. And one of the things which I, which I've thought about while watching that is because I like to think of our modern culture as upside down or as an inversion, because it's so much like what you were talking about a little bit earlier with the, the cursing done by the Toltec sorcerer of like, it's so death focused, you know, so much of what our culture is, is about, um, you know, the destruction and, and certainly death and decay are part of the material realm, but the death and decay ultimately lead to more expansion. Otherwise, you know, everything collapses upon itself. And our culture is just focused, you know, right now on the, the death or the decay element. And that's why it's, uh, I would call it an inversion. And then thinking about the, the idea of the upside down uh, in Stranger Things and our inversion, I'm like, is this, like, are we actually living in the upside down? Is that what, what this is pointing to? Like, you know, that's, this is what the upside down looks like, but you don't realize it. But, but uh, everything is, is backwards here. Like, you know, those are cultural values. The fact that they put out shows like, like they, they purposely put a release programming into the collective consciousness for this thing called binge watching. Like, you know, that was never a thing before a handful of years ago. Um, maybe you could do that if you had like a big DVD collection. Uh, but that is so unhealthy for the psyche and for the human being. Like, I mean, the whole thing is just, just, uh, anti-life and they're telling us that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, if we're in upside down world now, it wouldn't surprise me. Well, or is that the perspective? Like, you know, because let's go back to this idea of the vision quest, you know, because what, what, 
if that's part of it. So, um, so let's go and tie this all together. So the, the point of Matthew Modine and Vision Quest is like, is this, this, this highly contagious program. And what I mean by contagious is like people see it and they want to keep watching it. Like, you know, it, 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 it captures you. Um, and it's got all this self-referencing. Is it, is it hinting at what we're looking at in, as this, this kind of like 1980s MK ultra society um, is really like a vision quest, which is a self, uh, a self-induced crisis for the purpose of understanding purpose or understanding oneself. Like that's kind of like what the vision quest is. And then we, we put that in context with the fact that, and oh yeah, like, you know, all of this is, is upside down. Like this is the crisis. Like it's literally the crisis is that all of us are living in this upside down, this upside down sort of experience. And we'll even tie this in. Let's even tie this in completely to the beginning of our conversation about like the true nature of how human beings would relate with, with the realm in which we find ourselves. Like, you know, is this bringing out that crisis? Like it's bringing it to a head. It's bringing it to our face where we're able to then go and grow from it. And we become something else, which you could only become by walking through that storm. And, you know, after, you know, in theory, in some sort of, uh, culture where someone would live in a, in a time where a vision quest is a rite of passage. Once that vision quest would be done, you return back into whatever that vision quest would be, because that's just an umbrella term. Like, you know, it's, it just means like a purpose, a uh, crisis an induced crisis for, uh, stepping into one's, uh, role. If we are, if we are, are, are finding ourselves in that vision quest right now with culture, with the binge watching, with the, with the, um, uh, James Shelby downard vortexes with the hardware, software upgrades of vortexes, like with all of this stuff, which is going on, which is just making everyone like breaking everything down, down and down. Is it ultimately to then bring us to an awareness of something which we would never be able to appreciate had we not gone through the process, you know, and I mean that collectively. Um, so that's how I would like to look at it. Hmm. It's like, it's like this documentary we watched about camels where the camels are being trucked on these big, like heavy lifts. Like the, the people in Saudi Arabia love camels so much. They're like, pets you know they love them but when you look at how the veterinarians operate on the camels it's like how a human must feel being abducted by aliens because they take these poor camels they strap them they lift them in the air they have this huge like uh conveyor belt in the ceiling that like you know takes them from one part of the facility to the other and it's just yeah it's it's unbelievable uh like what that camel must be thinking like in that moment you know but it's all for their benefit essentially because uh, you know, when you domesticate an animal, they start getting all these ailments. And so, yeah, they, they have to, like, operate on their knees and 
take pull their teeth out and all this stuff. <laughs> it's a while ago we watched that, I this. I don't think that I don't think that's for their benefit, but uh, like within the culture, I would I would agree with. But that 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 <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, was, yeah I, maybe I it's a little that. extreme. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean now this is another pivot, but like. Um, I mean, just the whole idea about with our culture, like the irony is like this culture is so much about death, but then at the same time, you know, the, uh, we do every, it's also all about doing everything you possibly can do to avoid death. Mm, right, right, right. And, and that is, uh, as bad, that's as inverted in my opinion, um, as, as the fact that, the largest industry on the planet agreed upon industry is the industry of like killing people. Right. You know, the arms industry. Right. And so that's just is, is backwards of like doing everything you can to stop anything from dying. I'm like, well, sometimes shit's gotta die. Well, yeah, there's the, there's a symbiosis in the cycle of life and all that for sure. I'm uh, I'm just doubt. pausing for motorcycles passing behind me, but um, are you driving? No, at my apartment, our new apartment. We're we're not that far from the road, so and on nice sunny days like this, or at least it was sunny ten minutes ago. Uh, people drive their motorcycles past our house down to the beach all day. So, so yeah, it makes for uh, me having a quick trigger mute button finger. <laughs> I would imagine you have gotten very aware of that. But, yeah, definitely a, a sort of a, a cultural touch point with Stranger Things. And I, I get what you're saying where they're kind of like reprogramming what was initially laid out in the 80s for the new generation i mean of course the the shows that people watch with their parents you know they're designed in a sort of twofold way you know so that the parents and the kids will both find something entertaining about it so yeah it is kind of like uh representing that it undoubtedly is hmm. All right, so, what do you, so what do you say? I think that, that, that feels like a good place to wrap this one up. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I was just going to ask if you had any closing thoughts beyond what you just said. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Let's, um, cause I always like to kind of uh, tie it up in a bow and and there was a big part in the beginning of our conversation today at, when I was talking about, you know, me with the car and the car is a symbol. I mean, these are all just symbols, you know, we're just like dream walking right now. We're looking at all the things around us and we're, we're, we're looking at it as if it were a dream and, and finding like some degree of, of, of insight that way. And so the car and me talking about, you know, maybe where I was just in the beginning of the year and like where I am right now. And he knows where I'm going to be in the fall, you know? Um, but, but, but seeing the ebbs and flows of, of life and like, I mean, this, this year has been, I would say the, uh, you know, pardon the pun, the strangest year I think I've had for a very, very long time. 
strange being relative to my previous years uh, mm. in terms of like where I've lived, who I've lived with, what I've been doing. Um, it's been unlike anything I've experienced before. And it, at times, you know, it's, and you know, that's, it's got all sorts of highs and lows that comes with it. But the, the biggest truth of it is like, this is really different. You know, this is really uncharted territory. And in my opinion, that's what I think life is really about is embracing like, you know, your own personal unknown. Um, and then tying that in with, you know, my friend who has got the Subaru and I use the car as, as this metaphor and this totem and this symbol. And now seeing like, you know, where that's meeting my friend and where he is like, in his personal journey. But all of our personal journeys are tied into the craziness, which we're collectively going through right now. Um, in terms of redefining, redefining what our, what life looks like on earth and how we're going to, um, how we're going to live. And I would say very much so that we went through a collective vision quest. Uh, some people, um, are unable to, um, recognize the event, but there are a lot of people who are seeing like, you know, uh, their life will never be the same. They're not the same person and they're redefining how and who they are. And, you know, and that came through the crisis and, you know, maybe we're still going through that. Like, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like if you keep on watching the news and the stuff around you, there's scarecrows all around. So I'm not saying like, that's not, that's not a, uh, um, you know, that's, that's not happening as much as, like there's, there's an even greater thing. Like it is all changing and, and having an awareness that it's showing itself on every level of our reality, um, at least to me brings a very high degree of, of, of comfort knowing that like, you know, it, it becomes easier to, to relax into the tumultuousness of, of, of what the change brings. Well said, yeah. Was there anything about uh, Strangeness Happens? Is that the name of the film you made? Is there anything that comes back up to mind with that before we wrap up completely? Because I felt like you brought that up and maybe there was another connection with that besides just the similarity of the title. So uh, it was called The Strange Happening. And, um, that, that whole thing sits, um, it sits like right outside of my memory. Like that feeling you have when you're trying to recall a dream and you can't quite mm. recall it, but like, like that play like, we were talking about last episode. Exactly. That you in, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like I've got a, I, and this is probably around the same period of time. Like we're all right around middle school. Um, it's so funny. I, I, you know, not to cut you off, but I acted in, uh, two plays in middle school and then I, uh, I made a movie in high school, Kung Fu movie that I showed you, I think. I've seen your Kung Fu movie. In fact, I found that, I found it highly entertaining. I like watched it all. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I think particularly knowing you now and so being able to like watch watch it as a study of who you were 10 years ago like oh, yeah. Yeah. Like that. so i i would um 
it would it, it would bring me immense joy to be able to see strange happening. Um, oh man! All I I my memories are I can remember filming it. I remember like we went to On VHS. My, maybe I don't remember or whatever came equipment. before that. <laughs> I don't remember the equipment we used, but I remember going over to my she was our reading teacher. Uh, I was in seventh grade and rented a class called Challenge Reading, and and. I remember it was me, <laughs> obviously name dropping. It was me, Sailor Moeller. That was his name. You know, I wonder, I wonder if we could even go uh, Google that or doxing him. So me, Sailor Moeller, spelled uh, just as it sounds, and Larry Katko. I think it was the fourth person, but we made, like, it was our class project. And I remember that, and I remember it had to do maybe with UFOs, but it had to do with like, or maybe with ghosts, but it had to do with like something strange at night. And it was like, you know, it was, it was meant to be kind of scary, but kind of funny. Exactly. Like stranger, strange, stranger thing. Like it was, it was, it was so similar. Hmm. I think I found sailor. I Googled him. <laughs> what, what's sailor Muller doing? Well, it says Purdue university. And then it talks about his father. I mean, it could his be father, someone else, but no, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain it's, it's the same one. I remember Sailor Moeller's father was like a scientist and Sailor Moeller. I remember his car when he was in high school is he created his dad, um, like created this special compartment where it took like it captured like a, a good amount of exhaust and it would hold it. And then he could push a button and release all the gas at or all the exhaust at once and create a cloud in front of the car behind him. <laughs> and so, like it was, it was an interesting family. Me and Sailor Muller. This is this is going to sound so freaking horrible. <laughs> can, can I tell you? Can I can I do a middle school confession? Please. Uh, so I remember me and Sailor Muller. God, this sounds like and like like what's so funny. In today's context, this is going to sound absolutely like, like if someone were to hear this out of context, like they would be aghast. But like, this is just like how things rolled in the 80s when you were in middle school. But he and I used to all, we would go in his backyard with BB guns and we used to shoot at all of the landscapers at the, uh, at the, uh, um, the medical facility behind his house. <laughs> And we would uh -oh. act like snipers. <laughs> exactly. Like we didn't have high powered BB guns. But I'm thinking like now, like, you know, everything which is out there. Like that was not a thing like in the eighties when they talked about that. Like, you know, like that was something to, to be concerned about. But like yeah. it's it, it's funny. That's why no they one made, got hurt. That's why they made nerf guns to eliminate all the <laughs> BB gun injuries. <laughs> you saw, that's that's how it was in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, I remember my grandparents had a BB gun that anytime I went over their house, I would try to get my hands on it, and I was quickly caught and uh, reprimanded. So, yeah, I had the same instincts as a kid, Mike, but... Well, I think everyone does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no need to... No need to apologize for that. I don't think that was exclusive to the 80s. You probably would have got away with it quicker than you would nowadays, for sure. Well, I, I think we always got away with it. I don't think I ever got in trouble for that sort of stuff. Hmm. <laughs> well, I think that's a fitting way to, to wrap this up, a little walk down memory lane. 
if anyone stuck around to the very end to hear that 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 confessional, that's their that's their their treat. That's their reward. Beautiful. All right, Mike. Well, I'm putting the Myco Fest link in the description, so I just want to remind people of that, and then also find oh, sold out, but definitely put oh. it up, put it out there. Like it's a, it's a limited engagement. Like it's okay. uh, I don't know how many, but uh, put it up there. Like it's uh, it's like legit. Cool. Well, then I also wanted to ask if you have another tour coming up this month or next month that we could let people know about in case they want to make travel arrangements. Yes, I've got one on Sunday. I've got one in two days. <laughs> How about uh, I've next got month? Um, yeah, I've got one. Um, uh, I've got one a month. So uh, next month is going to be at High Point. But yeah, if you ever go to the Touchland Alchemy website, like that's where I have this tour. Those tours located uh, the information and where you can book a spot. Wonderful. Right on. All right, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, everyone listening.